Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law. I'm Kimberly Atkins-Store. This week, we'll be looking at what redress Governor Cuomo's victims have now that impeachment is not on the table. And we'll be looking at the weaponization of the DOJ under former President Trump. And we'll check the status of mask and vaccine prohibitions and requirements. And as always, we'll be answering some of your questions at the end of the show. But first, uh, in our chit chat, you know, I want to talk to you girls about one of the things that I learned to do during the pandemic, which was make a proper cocktail. Now, I am a um, I, I enjoy an occasional old fashioned. Uh, I'm a I'm a brown liquor type of chick. And so uh, I enjoy a nice bourbon drink, but I could never make cocktails at home. I would get all the ingredients, put them together and it would taste like poison. But I managed <laughs> to master the old fashioned. And here's, I won't give all of my tricks away because there are several, but one of them I will. And it's to use orange bitters, not just regular uh, Daxino bitters, but the orange flavor bitters makes it outstanding. What about you guys? Have you uh, mastered cocktail making? What about you, Joyce? You know, I don't, I, and this is true when I cook too, I, I prefer to not work from a recipe. So a lot of the mm. time I'll just look at what we happen to have in the kitchen and make something with it. And I grow herbs, and I would like to make those simple syrups where you would put herbs into them and just sort of mix whatever was there. Sometimes it was good, and sometimes it wasn't. <laughs> but my husband in the last month has declared Sunday evening to be a family cocktail night. We have grown children who live in town. And so Bob has started this pretty adventurous sort of approach to cocktail making. Last week, we had Mary Pickford's. Um, they were a little bit strong for me. Wait, wasn't Mary Pickford? I don't know. It was really strong. I hope he's not listening to the pop podcast. I didn't really love it, to tell you guys the truth. But he had made one the week before with chartreuse, which was this green liqueur that was really, really good. And I think this week he's doing something with pineapples and rum. So I'm sort of a fan, but I confess I'm into cocktails more for the sweet fruitiness and, and less for the alcohol. Huh? What about you, Barb? Well, you know, in my old age, I, uh, I I tend to drink more Diet Coke than anything else. Although with, um, you know, my new lifelong commitment to Noom and healthy eating, the, the one real Achilles heel in my diet, I have concluded, is is Diet Pop, as we say here in the Midwest. And Kim, I know. Uh, displaced Midwesterner, back me up on this. It's pop, not soda, right? They do say Absolutely. pop there. Absolutely. I have this been on the East Coast. so. Yeah, I've been on the East Coast oh, for 20 plus me. years, so I've become mm. a soda person. Apologies. So pretentious. People <laughs> down here say Coke. It doesn't matter oh, yeah. what you're it's drinking. Coke for everything. It's just a Coke, yeah. Yeah, well, we call it pop, and but I, I have been a drinker of Diet Coke for many, many years. And, you know, I'm a little bit inspired by my member of Congress, Debbie Dingell, who very publicly had an ulcer and then uh, publicly gave up Diet Coke. She was uh, also quite quite an addict. Um, and so I'm a little bit inspired by that, and I want to give up my Diet Coke habit. But I'm looking for a substitution of, of a drink that will kind of like carry me through the afternoon. You know, there are times when I want uh, a refreshment. Um, doesn't need to be caffeinated. I think I like the the carbonation, I think I like the fizz. So I would love for our listeners to share with us any thoughts they have. I'm thinking maybe uh, some flavoring seltzer water in some way might be good. 
but I need a little flavor too. Just plain water, you know, is not as satisfying. So do you guys have any uh, suggestions for uh, good soft drinks without without drinking soda pop in the middle of the day? You know, the last time I was on a plane, um, I got club soda and it was, I was offered watermelon flavor and I don't like watermelon, but it was really good. Mm. It was yeah, not put, sweet. Some fruit and some seltzer? I think the mm-hmm. problem, yeah, I think the, the problem with me with soft drinks is when, when they get sweet. So I tend mm-hmm. not to do soda, but that was actually really refreshing. So you might want to try that. So, my drink I drink of a choice. lot of iced tea in the afternoon too. Mm-hmm. Same. I, I hate iced tea. But I drink a lot of Soda Stream, which is where you make your own seltzer at home. No soda, uh, no, no. It's just carbonated water. It sounds like a lot no of work. Salt is it a lot of work? It. No, it's so simple. You just screw the bottle into the device and you press it, and it you presto, and you don't have to go to the store and carry home heavy bottles. You don't have to worry about recycling bottles because you use your own at home and oh, you keep using okay, the yeah. same no, one. That's good. And all the right. other thing I do that would is, also help me. Uh, Reduce my my uh, my footprint, so that's all good. Yes, it would. And the the other thing I love to do to answer your question is I have a little pitcher that has an infuser built into the cap, and you can put any kind of fruit or cucumber. Cucumber is really good, but you can put watermelon, strawberries, lemon, and you infuse it into just plain water. And with a few cubes of ice, that's a very terrific, refreshing yes. drink. Can I, can I make yes. it even if I'm incredibly lazy? You <laughs> certainly can. It's something like a lot of work to me. I got to be honest, Jill. It's something like a lot of work to me. All you have to do is peel a cucumber or cut up a, a lemon. I mean, it's really easy. She lost me at peel. Throw in, I don't know. Basil also. Basil <laughs> Jill, and water. are you sending yeah. us all a link? I think I might need to get one of these. <laughs> oh, I will. I'll show you. I'll send you a picture. It's a fabulous device. You could put it straight into the water, but this way it doesn't mush into the water. It just lets the flavor seep in. Um, All right, sounds Refrigerated, it's terrific. I will explore it. Very good. I also make mojitos. That's my specialty for summer drinking. Now we're talking. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so let's get into our first topic. Now that we know that an impeachment is unlikely for Governor Andrew Cuomo, let's talk about what other redress could happen. Jill, why don't you lead us in that conversation? Great. So I want to start with some background, which is it's not very long ago. It was on August 3rd that the New York State Attorney General, Letitia James, issued a scathing 165-page report detailing 11 credible claims of sexual assault and harassment by Governor Andrew Cuomo, and describing his office as embodying the very definition of a toxic work environment. Governor Cuomo claimed he was innocent and would never resign, but a week later, on August 10th, Cuomo announced he would resign, effective two weeks later. And I wondered why he left it for two weeks. And I think it has to do with the fact that... um, the impeachment rules are what they are, and that that would have delayed any kind of action uh, and might have interfered with it. But as of today, he uh, knows that he will not likely be impeached. Um, So let's look at what the future holds for him and for the women who accused him. I tweeted that if he thinks that his resignation would end his legal or political problems, he should think again. 
and multiple district attorneys, including our former sister-in-law, Mimi Rocco, are investigating assaults that occurred within their geographic jurisdictions, and one criminal complaint has already been filed by the woman who was known as Executive Assistant Number 1, Brittany Camisso. She uh, was the one who claimed he reached under her blouse and fondled her breast. In addition, uh, although there's no impeachment, there are possibilities of civil cases for damages by individual victims for torts, as well as under the New York Human Rights Law or federal EEOC law. So let's break it down for our listeners and see what consequences Cuomo may still face. And um, I was going to start with you, Barb, on talking about impeachment, as a, a, but now that we know that the uh, government isn't going to impeach him, why do you think they aren't going to go ahead with that? Yeah, that's an interesting question, Jill. You know, I think one of the reasons is uh, some of the vagaries of the laws of New York. Um, it's it's not clear whether you can um, impeach someone after they've left office. Now, of course, he's going to be in office for another, I don't know what, it's not 14 days anymore, but 10 days or so. And you can't have the trial until 30 days after the impeachment. So he will be gone by then. As we learned in the Trump impeachment, um, it could be that even if, as long as he's impeached before he leaves office, you could have the trial afterwards. But the New York Constitution is much uh, vaguer than the U.S. Constitution. You know, the U.S. Constitution talks about um, uh, high crimes and misdemeanors. The New York Constitution doesn't even say that. It does say that the Assembly has the power of impeachment. It doesn't specify who is subject to impeachment. It does, in some of the procedural stuff, mention the governor and the lieutenant governor, so at least those two are included. Um, But at one of their constitutional conventions, one of the um, members of the committee, uh, the delegates, said something like he thought it would be unwise to define impeachable acts specifically because it is beyond the power of human ingenuity human ingenuity to think of everything that would be punishable. Uh, This guy was thinking of a a Donald Trump someday, perhaps. Um, So for that reason, because things are so vague, I I think um, it would be risky if they were to have an impeachment proceeding. It could be that it would tie things up in legal challenges or it might not stick. I think the one reason that would uh, to argue the other way is that impeachment brings with it not just removal from office, but barring a person from ever seeking office again. Um, And that is a way to hold him truly accountable. And so they're giving that up by saying we're going to forego impeachment. And that's a reason perhaps to argue um, in favor of it. I also think that there is just politically, once he's gone, I think there will be pressure on the New York Assembly to just, you know, move on and get to other business, certainly uh, COVID relief and economic relief and other things are very important right now. So I think there may be a practical aspect to it as well. Yeah. From what you're describing, it sounds like uh, due process is at issue here and that maybe New York needs to amend its constitution so that if there ever was a time when they wanted to impeach, they could do it in a proper fashion. Um, yeah, but, I think you're right, Jill. You shared with me an excellent article from uh, yeah. the Fordham Law Review about the problems with impeachment law in the state of New York. And as you mentioned, due process requires that laws not be vague, that we know what it is. You, you know, you, you're entitled to notice of what the law prohibits. And so by not listing anything, you know, even high crimes and misdemeanors is pretty open, but at least it lets you know what it is. And the worry is that 
impeachment could be used for political purposes. You know, what if somebody right. just um, advances a um, a bill, an infrastructure bill that is politically unpopular within his own party? Is that a grounds for impeachment? Well, it doesn't say it's not. So there is room for abuse there. And I think um, it might be important to to tighten up that language to include misconduct in office, but not things that might be considered political, you know, within the bounds of political activity. Exactly. And other potential consequences could be civil. And Kim, as our civil litigator here, I'd like to turn to you and ask about what possible civil penalties uh, former, soon to be former Governor Cuomo could face because of the actions that he's been accused of. Yes. So when it comes to the question of whether the uh, women who have accused soon-to-be former Governor Cuomo have legal recourse, the answer is resoundingly yes. But um, as I'll explain, there is a hitch and a twist that that, uh, are possible. So first, let's look at the law. Both federal and New York state law prohibit uh, the, the the very conduct that he is accused of having engaged in, according to the report from Attorney General Tish James. Uh, on a federal level, Title VII prohibits sexual harassment in the workplace. It also prohibits the creation of a hostile work environment. And it also prohibits retaliating against someone who raises a claim of sexual harassment or hostile work environment. And in various, in all of these 11 cases, uh, the 11 people who came forward and accused the soon-to-be former governor, it is at least one of those three, if not more than one of those three, that is alleged according to this. So if they are able, they can they can bring a civil uh, claim through the EEOC um, on the federal level. And if they are able to prove that, then that could be liability that that uh, Cuomo could face. There's also a New York state law. Uh, it's part of the State Division of Human Rights Law. Now, interestingly enough, it was amended in 2019 and signed into law by Governor Cuomo. And it actually changed the requirement that must be proven to show sexual harassment or, or hostile work environment previously. Uh, a claimant had to prove uh, that the harassment was, quote, severe or pervasive uh, in order to uh, win. And that was such a high bar. It's very difficult. If somebody is, for example, um, if someone has a supervisor who on a daily basis or, or frequently says, oh, you look really nice, you should dress like that more often and uh, or occasionally would put a, a hand on them, but it didn't happen every single day or if it didn't happen enough to be quote unquote pervasive, then that wouldn't uh, be enough to be able to bring a civil claim, even though that would, if you're if you're experiencing that, of course, that could feel very much like sexual harassment. So it took that requirement away. Uh, and under that law, it also extended the statute of limitations to bring these claims from one year to three years. So for both of these things, anything that the governor did since 2019, uh, now t- uh, in the past two years, he could face civil liability for. Now I want to get to the hitch. Uh Cuomo can seek to have the state of New York be the defendant, since that was the employer in this case. And if that happens, if he's successful in doing that, 
then the taxpayers of New York can be on the hook for paying these civil ju- uh, these civil judgments, which certainly uh, wouldn't make me very happy if I still lived in New York State. Now, that's not to say that he cannot be found individually liable in civil court. In fact, um, Attorney General James specifically said in her report, she laid out that this could be the subject of individual liability for Andrew Cuomo. But you can bring uh, a claims and have a, a judge and or jury find that both the, the state and Cuomo himself individually are liable and a jury can award damages against both. Uh, or either. It depends. So there's still the possibility that taxpayers might have to pay any civil, pay a civil judgment. And then finally, the twist. If the state uh, is deemed to be the defendant here, then that means that Attorney General James, her office would be in the position of defending it. Uh, <laughs> this that comes from her report. Now, of course, the state could uh, contract out uh, that, have a, an external uh, attorney handle that, of course, since their office was involved in doing the investigation in the first place to involve conflict of interest. Uh, but that's just one of the additional twists in this case as it plays out. Um, what I suspect will happen, which often happens in civil cases, is that um, there probably will be settlements. Um, if that is the case, one thing that I am hoping is that it does not come with any sort of gag order any sort of prohibition that prevents any of these women from speaking truthfully about their experience and what happened to them. They may not be able to disclose the exact terms of the settlement if that happens, but I certainly hope that they are not prohibited, which often which often happens in civil settlements, from discussing the facts of the case, because I think public policy really mandates that the public get a full accounting of exactly what happened and that these women be allowed to speak freely. Before we move to the possible criminal consequences he may face, I just want to stress something that you mentioned, uh, because I know I found it extremely disturbing and unsatisfying as I researched this, that the civil consequences are particularly under uh, EEOC and uh, the New York human rights law, uh, intended to s- stop the process, stop the action. So it's injunctions, it's fines, it's yes. um, reinstatement if you had to quit or you were fired for wrongful reasons. Um, and that's not, I don't think, what any of the women who have been harassed or assaulted in this case want. And so that seemed very unsatisfying to me. And then you're left with maybe tort actions where you could get damages for him touching or causing emotional harm through the harassment. Um, but it, it wasn't like that clear cut, there's a real remedy for this. And that's something that yeah. we need to be looking at. Um, but let's look at, you know, are there some criminal consequences that he could face? So Joyce, I'm gonna ask you to sort of address what possible New York violations or federal violations there might be. Well, we're getting to the start of the law school year, so I'll I'll play law professor just for a sec (laughs) and talk about the crime of assault, because that's most likely, if a district attorney were to charge this, what we would be looking at, some kind of an assault. 
And an assault is an action that causes another person to fear that she's about to suffer physical harm. You don't actually have to make contact. The point of the crime, as lawyers say, the gravamen of the offense, um, is placing another person in fear of imminent bodily harm. And we recognize that actually creating that that fear in another person is something that's worthy uh, of moral approbation. So because this is a pretty low-level sort of situation when you think about it, right? I mean, technically, if I, Jill, were to, to lean out and, and you were to be afraid that I was about to strike you, that could be an assault. But we grade assaults into different levels of severity. The most serious kinds of assault, assault with a deadly weapon, are felonies, and they carry long sentences. But here we're probably not looking at that, and that too may be a disappointment to many people as they look at this situation. Assault is typically a matter of state law. Um, There could be a federal assault if it was, for instance, committed inside of a federal building, but that's not what we're looking at here. We're talking about state crimes. And so in New York, Cuomo's conduct is most likely a misdemeanor. That means it's a simple assault, a crime that's punishable by up to one year in jail, if it is in fact punishable. The exact section of the New York Code, as best as I can tell, is 130.52, which prohibits forcible touching. And the elements of that crime are to intentionally or for no legitimate purpose forcibly touch either the sexual or the intimate parts of a person for purposes of degrading them or abusing them or to gratify the actor's sexual desire. So this is a a pretty broadly based sort of prohibition on touching. The statute explicitly says that it includes squeezing, grabbing, or pinching. So when we're thinking about the conduct that you talked about, Jill, with Executive uh, Assistant 1, where Cuomo reached underneath her shirt and, and grabbed her breast, that would seem to fit this crime. And we do know that up in Albany, they have opened a criminal investigation. The sheriff up there has said he believes that it is most likely a misdemeanor crime. Other DAs, our friend Mimi Roca, as you mentioned, have reached out to Attorney General Tish James and asked that she share her information with them so that they can determine if they too should be opening a criminal investigation. I think the important takeaway, though, is that we are likely looking at misdemeanors, not felonies here. And, you know, Joyce, one point you made that I think is really important is when you read that statute, it is not just about sexual gratification, but it also includes things that are um, demeaning to the victim. And I think that's really important because you think about some of the touching here, running his finger down someone's back or rubbing a hand across their stomach. It may not have been for his own sexual gratification, but, you know, the women who were the recipients of that behavior found it degrading. And so that would also fit under that statute. And Barb, it's something that you flagged earlier this week when we were talking about this that I think is really important here. You do get a sense, and I think it would be viable evidence here, that he was about degrading these women. For instance, there's the woman, he forced her to learn the song Danny Boy and to sing it to him. What a degrading sort of thing to do to a woman in the workplace, trying to show that you have power. And and that's really what's going on in these sorts of crimes. These aren't about sex. They're about power and control. It's unfortunate that these crimes are only misdemeanors, but a criminal prosecution would allow the truth to come to light, and it really would be some form of, of accountability here. I, I would add to that, not only would it let the facts come out and be satisfying in in that regards, but it also is a message 
to all other potential predators, to those who want to use their power, that they cannot do this. And to the extent that he has raised the issue of, I am uh, just behind the times, and this is a generational thing, or it's the worst is it's how Italian Americans behave. Um, this is sending a message that absolutely that is not acceptable behavior and no one should engage in it anymore. So I think that's important that it become public. A good night's sleep really matters to me. I know it matters to all of us with how busy we stay. So for me, taking the Helix quiz and being matched with just the right mattress was a really great thing. How about you, Barb? Well, um, I also value my sleep. And so um, making sure that you have a mattress that uh, works for you is very important to me. And I sleep less than most people. So every hour that I am asleep really matters a lot. And after I took the quiz, I was surprised to find that they matched me with a much softer mattress than I was used to. And it's wonderful. Yeah, I was really skeptical of changing mattresses other than the kind I grew up with. And I have to say, uh, it really does make a difference. I, I am recently married, and I will say that having a good mattress and one that does not uh, wake the other up when they get up or move is really important. So, um, you know, the quiz was definitely a good thing. It matched me with the Helix Midnight Mattress because I wanted something just right for me. It matched me with the Nightmare Customer. But no, I'm, I'm kidding about that. <laughs> It'll find just the right match for you if you go to helixsleep.com sisters to take their two-minute sleep quiz to match with a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. From soft to firm, plus size, and cooling, they have it all. Helix mattresses come with a 10-year warranty, and you can try it out for 100 nights risk-free. It gets delivered right to your door, and they'll pick it up if needed. Helix is offering up to $200 off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash sisters. That's helixsleep.com slash sisters for up to $200 off and two free pillows. And look for the link in our show notes. Thanks to Helix for sponsoring this episode. And we thank you, our listeners, for supporting Helix. All right, for our next topic, we are looking at the weaponization of the DOJ under the former administration, particularly with respect to the Georgia election. Barb, lead us through that. Yeah, you know, this has been a really interesting story to watch unfold, Kim. We have seen this week mounting evidence of efforts by Donald Trump to use the Department of Justice to help undermine the results of the 2020 presidential election, using its law enforcement powers, using its litigation powers, um, the machinery of government to undermine the election results. So this week, uh, we, we saw news that the Senate Judiciary Committee and the Department of Justice uh, Inspector General have been meeting with a number of former DOJ officials. So the former acting attorney general Jeffrey Rosen, his deputy Richard Donahue, and the former U.S. attorney in Georgia, B.J. Pack, all answered questions in some very lengthy sessions with the committee. Um, and reporting indicates that, that what they were saying, what the story they've been telling, is that President Trump wanted them to investigate election fraud, or at least to say 
that the election was corrupt and leave the rest to him. Uh, and Pack, the former U.S. attorney, said that he resigned abruptly in January because Trump planned to fire him for refusing to falsely announce that there was widespread fraud in Georgia. And remember, you know, this comes even after Attorney General William Barr had declared that there was no substantial fraud in the election. We've, we've also seen that draft letter that Jeffrey Rosen refused to sign. That letter was drafted by Jeffrey Clark, who was the acting assistant attorney general for the civil division, after he had met personally with Trump in violation of DOJ policy. The letter was to be sent to six states, advising them that they could declare their elections to have failed and to then throw the selection of electors for their states to the Republican-controlled legislatures in their state. So it was essentially a roadmap for how to rig the victory for Donald Trump. Um, and Trump wanted to elevate Jeffrey Clark to acting attorney general, but he backed down when others at the Department of Justice threatened to resign. So um, it's really heating up and pretty interesting. But Kim, let me ask you, at the moment, this investigation is at the congressional level. Where can it go from there? And what can Congress do with all of this? And, and where else can it go from there? Yeah, so there are a couple things that can happen. The congressional investigation is aimed at fact-finding uh, for informing the public, you know, creating a record so that the public understands what's going on and what happened. But it also gives lawmakers the information they need in order to reform the laws that need reforming to make sure that any uncovered election interference never happens again. And in that vein, we may ultimately see new legislation introduced. Um, we may see a recommendation to the Justice Department that it change its internal policies and procedures in order to guard against this. Um, this would be in order to boost transparency. Um, we might see uh, increased whistleblower protections, for example, that encourage mm. people to come mm -hmm. forward in real time when these things are happening in order to protect them. And also um, penalties for this kind of interference for anybody who is willing to do it. I know you spoke about all the people who uh, declined to, but we have uh, folks like Jeffrey Clark, who apparently, according to the reporting, was willing to do it. Um, if he were allowed to. Now, on the inspector general side, that's a little different. Now, the inspector general's office can investigate and create a report and then refer that to federal prosecutors. So if they find any criminal laws were violated, then it would be up to federal prosecutors to decide what to do then in terms of bringing potential criminal charges and against whom. Yeah, you know, that reminds me of the topic we were just talking about, you know, where the the delegate to the New York Convention said, uh, you know, human ingenuity can't even imagine all the bad things people might do for impeachment purposes. And um, same is true with regard to crimes, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. it's not until somebody does something really awful that you can say we should criminal. There ought to be a law. We should criminalize this. So the things that Donald Trump did to undermine the election, maybe they are, maybe they aren't against the law. Um, but Congress, I suppose, can uh, figure out if it needs to fill gaps in the law about that. Um, who, Kim, who else do you expect the committee will ask to testify? And, and how long do you think of this investigation will take before the committee can get to the bottom of what happened? Yeah, I mean, it seems to me that this, along with other investigations to get to the second part of your question, that they're going to take as long as it takes. It's going to they're going to follow the facts uh, to get to what happened in order to to put out a complete report 
about what happened. And we should be able to see several other former um, Department of Justice officials testify, in part because the Department of Justice uh, has said that it has waived any executive privilege claims that would prevent them from coming forward. So we may see people uh, like uh, Patrick Havokimian, I'm saying that name wrong, or Bobby... That was was pretty impressive. (laughs) Or Bobby Valentine. These are both people who worked uh, under Rosen in the DOJ. But I think the number one person who at least I'm waiting to see testify would be Jeffrey Clark. And Jeffrey Clark, of course, is the former assistant attorney general who Donald Trump wanted to elevate because he was reportedly willing to carry Trump's water on the false claims of election fraud in Georgia to do exactly what uh, you outlined, which would be to send a letter informing Georgia officials that the election was fraudulent and that could uh, essentially give state legislators the ability to sort of try to overrule the will of the voters. It's really extraordinary when you think about it. I know we've talked about this a lot, but every time we do, it's so um, it's it's uh, really incredible. So you know, that could spur what we haven't seen yet, which is the potential for a subpoena if he chooses not, if he tries to avoid testifying. As I said, the DOJ has already said that they are not going to raise uh, executive privilege, that they have waived that. Uh, but Donald Trump's lawyer, Doug Collins, you probably remember him from Congress. Uh, <laughs> Doug Collins sent a letter basically saying that he, he believes that that waiver of executive priv- privilege is quote unquote unlawful. Didn't really explain how, why it would be unlawful. Uh, and that they uh, still hold the ability to try to assert that privilege. Um, so that could end up being a fight. I don't know how winnable it will be, but it will be a, a, a battle that um, we haven't seen so far. So far, everybody who's testified has come willingly, but that could be what's next. And, you know, Kim, as a reporter, you you must have some insights on this. Um, I find it fascinating. Katie Benner of The New York Times has been reporting on this yeah. like every day. She has um, good sources. Do, yeah, like, who do you think her source? If I know. Yeah, right. <laughs> How do you develop, you know, that that kind yeah. of uh I mean she's she's sharing some really important information, I think, and doing an important public service, but no doubt some of this you know, these sources are reporting anonymously, right? Absolutely. I mean, that's the, if when you are a, a dogged reporter on the beat and you earn the trust of the people that you're covering, you have the ability to get scoops like this. There, There's, um, you know, it's really incredible. It's people like uh, Joan Biskupic at the U.S. Supreme Court or or uh, other folks. Pete Williams has really great DOJ sources. Uh, there are really good reporters out there that have earned the trust, that have do that do good work, uh, and that are able to inform the public like this. Mm-hmm. Katie yeah. and I were on, I think it was Nicole Wallace's show together a couple of days ago, and they screwed up the Chiron and put my name below Katie. And <laughs> I was so flattered to be confused with Katie, because like you say, her reporting is just so immaculate. It is. She's also a knitter, but I won't go there because it'll get Barb upset. <laughs> now, I think it's it's really important news, and she's um, you know serving a, an important public service here. So, I hope she keeps keeps digging. Um, Jill, let me ask you about this. So, the the witnesses that Kim has named, you know, there's like six of them, I think, um, total. Three have already testified, but three more who got these letters from DOJ saying that the Department of Justice would not be asserting executive privilege, which is pretty extraordinary. You know, I think they said something like, because of the extraordinary circumstances, um, we are clearing you to testify and we will not be asserting executive privilege. 
can can Donald Trump do anything to block their testimony? Do you, do you think there's any way he could do that? Well, fortunately, so far he has chosen to do nothing, which I think is the right thing. Uh, and, and let's just talk in general about what executive privilege really is. Executive privilege is intended to protect the office of the president so that the person who occupies that office can get good policy and political advice in order to do his job. It is not intended to protect the president from criminal allegations. And there has long been a crime fraud exception, just like there is in the attorney-client privilege. And the president himself and any of his um, advisors can be required to give testimony and provide documents. That's, after all, what the Watergate decision, the U.S. v. Nixon uh, decision was about, was that the president himself was going to have to turn over the tape recordings of his conversations that were criminal in nature, that proved crimes were being committed in the Oval Office where they were recorded. And I think that that rule is going to apply here because I, I would go further than I think Kim did in saying that I suspect that these conversations are criminal, that the attempt by Donald Trump to get enough votes to overturn the vote or to say it doesn't matter if you actually investigate. Remember, the people he was talking to said, we have investigated. There is no fraud. His fired attorney, well, the attorney general Barr, who left, uh, said there's no fraud. And Rosen and Donahue in the conversations that we we're talking about said there is no fraud. And he said, well, just say that it was a corrupt election. Let me do the rest with my Republican supporters in Congress. That, to me, is an attempt to interfere in an election and is a crime. And so if those conversations are crimes or are evidence of crime, they aren't protected by executive privilege. And so I think that... Yeah, no, I just want to be yeah. clear that I agree with oh, okay. you. I didn't for a minute okay. say that this is not potential. I just said that that's not for Congress. Right. Like Congress can't bring charges, right. but that is for the IG. The IG can refer it to right. federal prosecutors right. if there are crimes broken. Election interference is a crime. It's a federal but, crime. Absolutely. But you don't if they need, find that evidence, you don't need that they can't a bring referral. It. I mean... DOJ right now can no, you go don't ahead need a and referral. So Correct. they don't have to wait for the IG right. to finish. I want to be absolutely yeah. clear. And and listen, if you want to go back and look, the Boston Globe, um, I'm on the editorial board of the Boston Globe, we put out a series that called Future Proofing the Presidency that lays all of this out, including how uh, people, including the former president, could be brought up on charges and how election fraud is election interference, uh, obstruction of justice. There are a number of crimes that may have been uh, violated here. So I, I just want to be super clear. Great. So, Kim, do you have any thoughts about why um, Donald Trump has not already tried to block them from testifying? I mean, you know, he's he has famously said, I'm going to block all the subpoenas. I mean, he could file a lawsuit to, to stop them from testifying, at least slow things down. Why, why do you think he hasn't? Um, I don't know what's going on in the former president's head, so I'm not going to pretend that I do. I think there could be a lot of reasons, including the fact that filing a lawsuit at this point means he would have to pay for it. Um, and I'm sure that's something that he does not want to do. 
Uh, but I think he is still, uh, by all accounts, uh, still tied up in this idea that there are f- there was fraud happening in Arizona and, and focusing on all these other things. Uh, and so who knows why he has not done that. Maybe he's listening to the counsel of Doug Collins, who was telling him that that probably won't work. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting yeah. question. Well, well, we'll keep an eye on that. Um, Joyce, I want to ask you about your views. Uh, should we see, you know, Jeffrey Rosen and Richard Donahue and B.J. Pack as heroes for their courage in speaking up this week? That's been a little bit of the public narrative. People have wanted yes. to cast them as heroes. Um and, you know, I'm just not there, Barb. I, I see them <laughs> as whatever the opposite of profiles in courage is, profiles in cowardice. These guys are it. Because what happened on January 6th, I don't view as a standalone event, right? It's, it's in many ways, it's the end point. At least from the moment he realizes that he's lost the presidency. And I'm... I'm making a couple of assumptions here, and these are fair points for investigation, but I'm in Jill's camp. I think that if there is investigation, it will reveal that Trump did believe he had lost the election, and he was looking for ways around that factual conclusion. I think conversations as they come to light and investigation will reveal that. And so he begins with the easy stuff. Can I get the military to stage a coup with me? Can I go to DOJ and get them to cast doubt on the election so I can get, you know, electors to interfere with the process and and Congress to throw the election? And he's thwarted at every step along the way. And that's how we end up on January 6th with this violent insurrection that takes place at the Capitol. So what we really have here is an acting attorney general and some folks in his office and in the DAG's office who could have intervened. They could have told the truth. It would have been as easy for them as calling a press conference to say, we've been asked to do something and it's not the right thing for the American people. But they didn't do that. They just sat on that even after January 6th, even as we went through impeachment, at every point where they could have upheld their oath to the Constitution, instead they worried more about their uh, personal futures, their careers, and I don't find that to be very courageous. All right, well, we'll have to wrap it up there, but uh, this is a developing story, and we will continue to talk about it in future weeks. There is nothing more delicious to me than a midnight snack of cereal, and my favorite cereal choice these days is Magic Spoon. How about you, Joyce? Are you eating Magic Spoon? We do eat Magic Spoon. You know, my husband is the big cereal eater in the family, and he loves it. I think he's the one who's been sneaking into it at midnight around here. How about you, Jill? I am not a cereal eater, but I love Magic Spoon because it isn't really a cereal, even though that's what it's called. It's protein, and you get a really healthy, tasty, filling breakfast, but it's also great for snacks. I actually have a secret, which is I keep a little snack pack in my car so that when I'm really behind schedule and don't have time to stop, I just have some of those, and I feel like I'm eating a healthy, tasty, great snack. It's wonderful. And Kim, I know you've liked it in the past. Are you still using Magic Spoon and loving it? Yes, I have. So it's been hot here in D.C., and I have a tip for y'all. Mixing the cocoa and the peanut butter 
on top of a little bit of vanilla ice cream, gold. Do it. Try it. Thank me later. Magic Spoon has zero grams of sugar, 13 to 14 grams of protein, and only four net grams of carbs in each serving. It's only 140 calories a serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and it's low-carb. You can build your own box or get a variety pack with available flavors, cocoa, fruity, frosted, peanut butter, blueberry, and cinnamon. And I've got some great news for our listeners. Magic Spoon is bringing back two super popular flavors, cookies and cream and maple waffle permanently. I haven't tried those, but I look forward to it. They're delicious, indulgent, and healthy. You have to try them. Go to magicspoon.com sister to grab your delicious cereal and try it today. And be sure to use our promo code sister at checkout to save $5 off your order. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's backed with a 100% happiness guarantee. So if you don't like it for any reason, they'll refund your money, no questions asked. Remember, get your next delicious bowl of guilt-free cereal at magicspoon.com sister and use the code sister to save $5 off and look for the link in our show notes. Thank you, Magic Spoon, for sponsoring this episode. Now I'm going to have to order more because I really want maple waffle. And I want that cookies and cream. What is that? (laughs) Listen, cookies and cream on top of the ice cream? Listen. They had jelly donut as a special the last time I ordered. (laughs) And it was like they gave you such a special price on it that it was irresistible. So I ordered (laughs) that and cinnamon, which I hadn't tried because my favorites were frosted and uh, fruity. Cinnamon And they were both terrific. Yeah, I like cinnamon. I like cinnamony stuff. (laughs) You'll love it then. You will. And now for our final topic of the day. It is mask and vaccine requirements and prohibitions. Joyce, lead us through it. So there's a lot going on with vaccine and mask mandates right now, and especially as students begin to head back into school in the Deep South. Uh, Of course, there are also folks out there who want to prohibit mandates that would require vaccination or masks. It's a little bit of a mess, frankly. You need a scorecard to keep track of what's going on, not just in states, but in counties and states. So as the Delta variant takes off in parts of the country, we have um, essentially a hot mess. I think it makes sense for us to try to sort out some of the law surrounding what government and business can and can't do to help folks understand what we're looking at. So Kim, why don't I start with you for a general overview? Is it possible that there could be federal or state mandates for an entire state or even for the entire country that would require vaccination? Yeah, so the short answer is on the state and local level, the answer is yes. Uh, States and local municipalities uh, very clearly have the ability to impose Uh, mandates, including vaccine mandates, in the interest of public health. And that stems from a 1905 Supreme Court decision, Jacobson versus Massachusetts. And what that had to do with was a smallpox vaccine uh, mandate uh, in the middle of that outbreak there. And it was challenged. And it said it was 
was within the police power of a state to impose that mandate in order to facilitate uh, public safety. And uh, that uh, decision was affirmed a couple decades later. There have been challenges to it, seeking to overturn Jacobson, and they have not been successful. So to this day, that is the law of the land, and it empowers uh Local officials in places like New York City, which has imposed uh, a vaccine requirement in public places in San Francisco to do that. And it is very unlikely that challenges against those would be uh, successful. Now, on the other hand, the federal government is different. There are limitations to what the federal government can do. It can regulate conduct uh, of the general public. We're talking general public here. Uh, only where it affects interstate action or international action. So, for example, the federal government could impose a vaccine requirement to fly on a plane interstate or uh, to come in and out of the country on a plane. They could do that. They have not done that yet, but they could. Uh, Certainly, federal employees working in federal agencies and departments can be required to get a vaccine as a part uh, as a term of their employment we're seeing that beginning to happen already with the Biden administration also the military uh, there is a, a vaccine requirement for the military and that is within the power of the federal government but but president Biden cannot just order a nationwide mandate for everyone uh, for the general public um, but importantly I think he can uh, use the power of the president in other ways, like encouraging private businesses to impose vaccine mandates for their workplaces and their employees. And and the federal government can also give aid to businesses in order to establish vaccine and mask requirements in their workplace. Uh, But he has to tread carefully as well. Listen, we know that a lot that one reason that a lot of people have resisted getting vaccinated is a distrust of government, a distrust of government mandates in themselves. So if he or local officials are seen as going way too far at forcing this, it could cause a backlash, which despite its good intentions, could have the effect of uh, working against the public health interest in trying to get everyone uh, vaccinated. It could discourage people. So there's that line that he needs to walk, but um, and all all officials need to walk. But that's where we are now. The the state and local mandates uh, seem to be seem to have really strong legal ground. It's interesting. Biden is certainly trying to use his bully pulpit with the order that federal employees and federal contractors get vaccinated, perhaps in hopes that every incremental group that, that can be vaccinated gets us towards some sort of a herd immunity. But Jill, that leads us to um, a really important sector, which is education and schools. And let's start by talking about school staff. As, as people start back to school, there seems to be some dispute about schools entering orders that teachers have to be vaccinated and staff has to be vaccinated. Do you think these orders are lawful? Will they get affirmed if there are legal challenges? I think they will be. And the evidence of that is that Uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett has said that Indiana University can require vaccination. Uh, It was in the context of a student challenge, but the language, the the actual rule that Indiana had was that faculty and students had to be vaccinated. And she let that order stand so that they will have to be vaccinated. Um, And in Illinois, Um, There's been 
a case where a, the Board of Education said, if you don't have this happen, you will not be able to participate in sports through the Illinois State um, Sports Association, and your diploma will not be recognized, which means you can't go to college on that diploma. Um, I also want to mention the Oregon governor who said that you don't have to have a reading or math skills requirement for graduating high school, which virtually makes that a useless degree. Um, so that school that re was refusing to acknowledge that they would go along with even just the mask mandate is now going along with the mask mandate because the severe penalty uh, was just too much for them to bear and they couldn't stand it. But yes, I think that it will be upheld. You know, it's, it's pretty interesting. The case that you referred to, the Indiana case where Justice Barrett rules, it doesn't go through that normal process that we're used to where, where cases work their way up and they're accepted or not by the court and briefed and, you know, argued and, and they're heard over a long period of time. This was actually an emergency appeal. Um, and so she oversees that federal appeals court that's in question, the Seventh Circuit, and she turns down that request for emergency relief really without comment. Um, it's how the court sometimes rules on these emergency yes. applications. But it seems to suggest that the students' claims are so meritless that no further litigation in this area will be successful, at least if, like Indiana does, the school is willing to entertain some sort of legitimate objection to being vaccinated, whether it's medical health or whether it's some sort of a religious objection. But this really seems to foreclose that for states that are willing to impose these sort of restrictions. Of course, um, other states, like the one that I'm sitting in, have not really um, seen fit to do that. And some schools are using really interesting strategies. Birmingham Southern, which is a small private school in Birmingham, is imposing fees on students who aren't vaccinated. It requires them to get tested very frequently and to bear that cost themselves. Do you think that those sorts of rules will hold up in, in states like Alabama and others where colleges are turning to that approach? I think in those states where the government isn't going to support them, schools are going to have to be very clever in, in what they do. And I, and I want to add one thing to what you said about uh, Justice Barrett and her decision. She didn't even ask for a defensive brief, uh, which does, to me, suggest, as you're saying, there was no merit to this, and there's no reason for you to even try to persuade me. Um, so again, that sets, a, I think, a context for how all of these rules are going to be viewed. Science makes it clear that masks and vaccines are essential to our returning to any kind of normalcy in this country, to protecting the health. Um, and students, particularly younger ones, are not eligible for vaccines. So they're really at risk, and they're at risk of bringing it home to immune-compromised family members, et cetera. Um, so I think we have to find ways, and this $500 fee for um, a school in Birmingham seems to be a perfectly sensible thing. If, if you aren't going to be vaccinated, they're saying, fine, we have to test you, and that costs money, and you're going to have to pay for those weekly tests in order to protect the rest of the student body. And um, 
I, I think the courts are going to see this in a sane, scientific way. I hope you're right. I think we'll get to find out about that one because Alabama's attorney general has already indicated that he's going to sue the the college if it goes forward with that. So more on that in the future. But let's um, shift from vaccines to masks. And Barb, I'll turn to you. Some governors have forbidden masking, which seems really absolutely insane in light of the fact that we're already seeing states like Florida and Texas where they're having problems with infection and teachers and students uh, have taken sick and, and some have even died. But where the governors have forbidden masking and there are either school districts or counties or individual schools who are defying them, do you think the folks that are trying to, to be sane and to get their students to wear masks, do you think that they'll have trouble when they go to court? I don't think they will. Uh, I think, you know, the case that, that Kim cited at, at the outset about mandatory vaccinations, um, if the state has the ability to do that, then I think that a state authority has the ability to enforce masks. But what's tricky about this- But Barb, this, can I ask you, it, it's a pretty yeah. old case. Do you think it's good law still? <laughs> uh, you know, what what's, what, we, were, we were joking about this. You know, it's, it, you always hear uh, people talk about when it's old and they want to rely on it. They say, why, this has been the settled law for over a hundred years. But if they don't want to rely on it, they'll say, that case is over a hundred years old. It has no relevance today. So uh, so I think the answer is yes, that it, it does have relevance. Um, and, and there's been, you know, no no subsequent case decision that's gone against that. But I think the twist here that makes it a little bit uncertain is what these governors are doing is the opposite. They're using their emergency powers not to force people to do things to protect public safety. They're forcing lower levels of government. Um, they're, they're prohibiting them from forcing people to be healthy. So it's a really interesting twist on the governor's emergency powers. So we're seeing this play out in a couple of different states. In Texas, we've got Governor Greg Abbott, who has issued an executive order prohibiting mask requirements. You know, no county, no school district can require uh, masks. But we have seen some lawsuits filed against that saying, look, we, we wanna protect the kids in our schools. And uh, in one case, a judge has found that under the Texas Disaster Act, the local judge had the authority to find that there is a disaster and to enact a masking requirement. So that's really interesting because a judge is doing that. And as you pointed out, Joyce, that judge is getting death threats, I think, right? Mm -hmm. Um and I think this is one of those things that's going to be state by state, and every state has kind of their own different um, rules about uh, emergency declarations and how they can um, play out. At Governor Abbott and the Secret the Attorney General in Texas, Ken Paxton, have already appealed that order to the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals. So they are still fighting to uh, give their people the freedom to kill themselves and others. Um, in Florida, we've seen kind of a similar similar thing with uh, Governor Rick DeSantis has threatened to cut school funding if they violate his order um, about masking. And so that includes the salaries of administrators if they defy his order. And his order says parents get to make the final decision about whether their children should wear masks. And at least two school districts have persisted in their masking requirement, and he has now backed down on this um, uh, cutting of salaries because he apparently does not have that authority 
under Florida law. So we'll see how that plays out. Here in Michigan, a Republican member of our state board of education has called masks for school children child abuse. You know, is it child abuse to require children to ride in a car seat? Is it child abuse to require older children to use a seat belt? These people have lost their minds. It's it, it's uh, really strange to me the extent to which um, people are falling for this propaganda that simple steps to protect public health, like wearing a mask, is somehow violating your individual liberty. You know, no shirt, no shoes, no service, no mask, uh, no school. I, I would actually like, uh, argue that it's child abuse to not require a mask because yeah. you are endangering your child and exposing them yes. to a deadly disease. I mean, they have to wear a, a helmet when they play football. Right? It, it, it doesn't make any sense. Nanny state. What kind of nanny state is that, Kim? <laughs> football helmet. Well, we for sure live in the upside down, right? When suddenly these folks are really concerned about folks having bodily autonomy and making decisions for themselves. And I'll be interested to watch how quickly that evaporates when we get into the Supreme Court's next term and the abortion yeah. issue comes back to life. But I guess that's snarky of me, and I won't end on a snarky note. Instead, I'll just share an email that Barb and I both got this week. I think we and a number of other people were on it. I couldn't tell if this gentleman was serious or not, but he said, whether or not a child should wear a mask in school is a decision that should be made by the parent, not the state. Parents have an inalienable right to allow their children to infect other children in school. Um, I suspect that that was a little bit of snark, right? But it, it really is what it comes down to. What are we willing to do as communities? And as we've discussed, President Biden has to tread carefully here. He probably can't do everything that he wants to do because the waters are politically fraught. So beyond what the law can do, what are the ways, Barb, that you think our government and our leaders can actually massage public opinion so we can get to the point where we are protecting our kids and our communities? Yeah, I don't know. I think we got to get this out of the political arena. It's, uh, you know, people have really um, become like, you know, fighting like uh, cats and dogs about this. I think there is also uh, some social media disinformation going on where people get their information. So, you know, pu public service announcements, maybe getting spokespeople to talk about this trusted people. I also think, you know, doctors, the American Medical Association, you know, people uh, who are trusted, who are seen as non-political actors, I think need to be the ones messaging this. Although, you know, look at Dr. Fauci, somehow he's become a political actor, uh, despite his efforts to just give good health information. But um, I, I think that we need to, you know, find people where they are, and uh, try to come at them from a lot of different methods with this, uh, this method message. I also think that as we see hospitalization rates and infection rates and death rates skyrocketing in these states like Texas and Florida and others, that I, I hope good sense will prevail. I think you're right. And it actually may take increasing rates of sickness and, and horribly even deaths. And that may ultimately be the only thing that can turn this around. Because as much as the law can do some of the heavy lifting here, it clearly can't do all of it. Hey, Joyce, you know, I just was on the website for Policy Genius, and they have life insurance, auto insurance, home insurance, 
It's really a good way to find the top-rated uh, providers of insurance in your neighborhood and to get the best price possible. You know, if you're like me, you don't want to spend your entire life thinking about insurance. And I like Policy Genius because it makes it easy to compare quotes from over a dozen top insurers all in one place. You don't have to do the research yourself. And you can save 50% or more on life insurance by comparing quotes with Policy Genius. That means you could save $1,300 or more per year using Policy Genius to compare policies. They have licensed experts ready to help you navigate the shopping and buying process with service that has earned Policy Genius a five star rating across thousands of reviews on Trustpilot and Google. Getting started is easy. Just head to policygenius.com. Any eligible applicant can get covered in as little as a week with an award-winning policy rated number one by Forbes. And all it takes is a simple phone call, no doctor visit required. In minutes, you can work out how much life insurance coverage you need and compare personalized quotes to find your best price. They never sell your info, don't add on fees, and even handle the paperwork for free. So head to policygenius.com to get started right now. Policy Genius. When it comes to insurance, it's nice to get it right. That's policygenius.com or find them in the link in our show notes. As always, we've received some great listener questions this week. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw@politicon.com or tweet us using hashtag SistersInLaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on your Twitter feeds throughout the week. We'll answer some of those questions, as many as we can. So uh, the first question that we have is from Wendy, and the question is, whatever happened to the election finance law crime for which Michael Cohen went to jail? Presumably, individual number one was Trump. Is the issue done, or will it be resurrected or in progress? Joyce, what, what's happening there? Well, we're at least arguably coming up on the statute of limitations in that case if the former president was ever going to be charged. Uh, my answer to why he hasn't been charged is I don't really know. Uh, in fact, I, I reread the statement of offense that prosecutors in the Southern District of New York used when Michael Cohen pleaded guilty. I, I had occasion to reread that recently. And they lay out a pretty clear case against individual number one, whoever he or she may be. Uh, so I'm at a loss, frankly, to understand why they have not gone ahead and charged. And the last thing that I would say is Cohen is not the most culpable person in that case, right? He's acting to benefit somebody else, individual number one. DOJ's policy is to typically go after that, that person at the top of the food chain. So it's really inexplicable to me that this case has been circumvented. And Anybody I'm else thrilled have any ideas? that, yeah, no, I'm just thrilled that Wendy asked that question because it's been puzzling me as well. Um, I expected as soon as the administration changed and Merrick Garland was confirmed that the Southern District of New York would go for an easy case, which was this one that was laid out and to which there is a witness, it was good enough to send Michael Cohn to jail. And as Joyce just said, the person that he acted on behalf of and at the direction of 
has been let go free. And that makes no sense to me. So DOJ, if you're listening, Southern District of New York, if you're listening, we trust you. We think you should take some action. You know, the one thing that I will say is that there's been some suggestion that Trump's CFO, who has been in the news uh, recently as he's indicted by the Manhattan DA, uh, that he may not have been completely forthcoming with prosecutors in the Southern District of New York where he was given limited immunity in order to testify. So maybe there's some sort of quirky evidentiary holdup there, but it's tough to imagine how Cohen gets prosecuted and there's a holdup in the evidence against Trump. The only other thing I would add is, you know, it always sounds easy when we're sitting here to, uh, you know, just charge him, prosecute him. Um, you know, proving someone guilty beyond a reasonable doubt uh, is is a very high standard. And although Michael Cohen was willing to admit to his crimes, having to prove them in court might be quite another thing, especially when your only witness is Michael Cohen. And I don't think this should prevent... Oh, come on, Barb. You don't want to put Michael Cohen uh, on the witness stand? Maybe. I also wonder, you know, I, I, DOJ lawyers are supposed to bring charges only if they believe it is probable that they can obtain and sustain a conviction. Is there any worry about whether you can get 12 jurors to convict Donald Trump in America today? Mm. All right. Well, we mentioned statute of limitations. So I want to go to Gwynne Young's question, which is, do you think statutes of limitations should be eradicated? It gets me really angry whenever I hear that someone can't be charged for a vicious crime because the time has run out. I can see it for something like petty theft, but not for sexual assault. I I will start with this and then have y'all jump in. So just back up a little bit. The reason that there are statutes of limitations is to protect folks from being charged from crimes uh, where the factual uh, events happened so long ago that the memories of uh, actual witnesses and the evidence that would have been available no longer exists. So it makes it very difficult to defend against. So there is a policy uh, that encourages people, if a prosecutor has evidence of a crime, to uh, go ahead and move expeditiously to investigate and charge. Uh, There is the other side, though, that you don't want to make the window so small that essentially allows someone to wait it out. And if charges aren't brought, then they can get scot-free. And that's why for things like uh, sexual assault, we have seen in modern times, um, municipalities move away from statutes of limitations for things like rape because the crime is so atrocious that you don't want to uh, limit the ability to bring charges if you are able to get a witness, if you are able to get evidence. Um, Also, other crimes like kidnapping and murder often uh, don't have a statute of limitations. But there is a reason why we do have some of them. And if anybody else wants to jump in, uh, please do. No, I think that's a great explanation. Alabama is one of the jurisdictions that has abrogated statute of limitations for sex crimes. So you can go back and and charge old sex crimes. That's particularly important, for instance, in the situation that we've discussed with uh, Nasser, who was convicted of of, uh, sex crimes against the gymnasts who were in his care. And so I think that's an important step. Yeah, it's especially important in crimes where people are reluctant to report them and who may take longer than the statute of limitations to build the courage to admit that they were raped, for example. That's one of those situations. Um, We're seeing men who have been raped are very reluctant, much more reluctant than women, 
to report it, and that's true in the military as well as in civilian populations. And um, I, I think we need at least long enough statutes of limitations, but Kim is right that there is a reason. Evidence goes stale, memories go bad, and it's very hard to prove a case at a certain point. Uh, so it's not to protect the defendant from having this hang over their head and say, well, if I can wait it out five years, I'm safe. But it is to make sure that when a trial happens, due process is done. All right. And our last question is from Robert in Canada. Uh, He says the Dominion Voting Machine Company has filed a lawsuit against media outlets for defaming them in comments in relation to the 2020 election. Could there not only be a cash settlement involved, but also a requirement that the media outlet state their error, that there was no fraud in the election? What do you guys think? Well, you know, that's one of the first things that happens in a defamation lawsuit. And in some places, you have to go to a person before you sue them and demand a a, um, retraction of the defamatory comments. And in most places, the law says that you're entitled to that retraction in the same forum where you were defamed or libeled. Um, And so I think that absolutely... That's a form of relief that a court could order in these cases. And it would be fascinating, for instance, to see Fox News forced yep. to retract the big lie. I'm all in favor of it. Yep. And we did see uh, on some networks already, I be, uh, I won't say which one I thought because I'm not 100, 100% sure, but we did see when these lawsuits started flying, yes. people began to, to try to defend uh, against these uh, lawsuits, begin issuing those retractions online. So that certainly is uh, the type of relief that is available. All right. Well, thank you so much for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law this week with Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, Jill Winebanks, and me, Kimberly Atkinstore. Don't forget to send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag sistersinlaw. This week's sponsors are Helix, Magic Spoon, and Policy Genius. You can and should find their links in our show notes. Really, please support them. We are so grateful to them because that is why we are able to bring you this show. To keep up with us every week, follow hashtag Sisters in Law on our Apple podcast and wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. We love to hear your comments. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. Perfect timing. Thunder just started Me outside. Too. Like day. literally, I, I looked at the yeah. radar on my phone. I was like, oof, like it's a big nasty cell coming. Oh, you know so what? I bet it's the out. one that was... Uh, across the Midwest in the last few days. We lost power for a couple of days. That's rough. I was uh, I had no power from 7 p.m. until noon. I mean, I was this close to not being able to interview Joy oh Reid because I had no power, and we were figuring out, oh Mike came up with a solution. I could go to my car <laughs> to charge my cell phone, which was wow. dead, so that wow. I could do it from my car on my cell phone. And I had just finished... Five minutes before the lights went off, I had done my first use of a pressure canner, which requires precise timing. And if it had gone off, I would have had to start all over again. And none of you would have been able to appreciate my habanero peach jam, which I was in the middle of making.